I think Tevez going to Juventus, what, what a coup that was for me. I mean, On a head-to-head -head battle, Atletico Madrid can do uh, more damage to Barcelona than the other way around. Either he's really blind or he's fixing the match. I, I can't see it any other way. I'm, I'm trying to get Sir Bob on my side here by saying City will win the Premier League. It, it is an upset. You would expect Man United to go and win there. Over a billion dollars was paid in transfer fees uh, between the clubs in, in Europe. It's football. It's damn football. Like Ferguson said, football. Bloody marvelous. Yeah, well, the celebration was, I can't believe I just scored against Mexico. Uh, at one point, Parma, I think it's only like 224 players under contract. But they're going to throw me out of here, fellas. You're going to get me arrested on your show. If you're a serious talent, you're going back and you're playing for Santos. You, you know, you're going back to, to play for, like in Argentina, for River Plate or Boca Juniors. Or you're going to Europe. He looked like the Ryan Giggs of old. He was more creative than any player on the pitch. Um, he made Matt look stupid. He made Rooney look silly. Now, the Premier League is what the most exciting league out there. I think it's probably the best marketed league without a question. When you look at the draw for the, the Champions League, you kind of say, well, all the pieces kind of fell into place for everybody except City. I am your host, Joe Ucello. Sir Bob, Mike Orr, my co-host, Rob Rojas. My trusted co-host, Ben the Machine. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 341 of Low Limit Football on this 7th of November, 2021. I am your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight, Xavi Hernandez returns to his beloved Barcelona. Will it be in time to save the club? We're going to discuss that. There are just two unbeaten teams left in the top five leagues in Europe. We're going to let you know who the winners and losers are on the weekend, and we head into this international break with Antonio Conte making his return to the EPL. Was it Manchester United? Was it Tottenham Hotspur? We're going to let you know that, and we're going to discuss much, much more with our special guest, Mr. Tom Scholes from TalkSport, who will be joining us in just a little bit. But first, let me get my co-host in here, Mr. Roberto Rojas. How are you, my man? I'm good, Joe. I'm good. It seems as if, though, you know, we're heading into another international break, but not before some drama happening Um Mainly off the pitch, actually, if you think about it. Well, on the sidelines of the pitch, I would think, is what you're yeah, referring to, right? That's yeah, what I mean, yeah, man. It's like, you know, I feel like we do this or we go through this every every year. Um, but it feels like this time it's a little earlier than normal. Um, and you're talking about the mass sackings going around in Europe, um, whether it be at Genoa with uh, Andrei Shevchenko coming in. We saw Norwich sector manager. We saw Aston Villa sector manager. We just talked about uh, Tottenham Hotspur last week with Nuno Spiritu Santo um, and the Antonio Conte derby that we, you know, that we were talking or the sweepstakes that we were talking about. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is his job safe going into uh, the international break? Who knows? Um, wow, there's just so many moving pieces. Um, Sergey Bargwan just got into his job and will now be out of it as of Monday. Uh, it's just what is going on? I mean, can you do you make any rhyme or reason of it? Well, I mean, I guess the international break allows them more time to, to make these decisions instead of having to wait in the middle of the week because it happens so quickly. Agreed. Um, yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I, for me, we've seen it happen before. God, I, I want to say as early as this season where we've seen a manager sacked at the end of the international break. And I'm trying to think of who it was. I, I, it's escaping me right now. But we saw a manager sacked 
at the end of an international break and you're like, why are you doing it now and not a week and a half before? Here, I agree with you. I think it allows teams to to find their candidate, to secure their candidate, to work with their candidate within about a week's time, week and a half, 10 days, um, and, and then jump back into the, the, uh, the season for whatever team we're talking about. Um, so I agree. I just, it's amazing to see how many we're seeing um, getting sacked so far. And I'm sure the, the I'm sure we're not done. Right. Um, no, no, we're just getting started. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, so let's, let's get into the show proper. My friend, we have, uh, we have trivia. We have, we have a great guest coming up in Tom Scholes, which we're going to be able to talk about a lot of different things in the premier league. Um, and especially get his feel on the, uh, on the premier league. Also, he covers, um, football for get French football news. So maybe we'll sprinkle in a little, um, Kaylor Navas in there because it looks like there's a developing story there, but, um, my friend, let's, let's get to it. Uh, and you have the honor of trivia. So why don't you lay it on me? Let's do it. So over the weekend, we saw Real Madrid beat Rayo Vallecano 2-1. And we also saw Casimiro playing in his 200th La Liga game with Real Madrid, becoming the third Brazilian to reach this milestone. So my question to you is, who are the other two that make up the list as the most as the two the Brazilians with the most games in La Liga for Real Madrid? Wow. Um, okay, I've got one name that that was easy. Oh, you know what? I might have this. Yeah, I think this should be easy. I might two have... recognizable names. Yeah, because it's it's in La Liga, not necessarily for Real Madrid. And the first name. No, I might... no, 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 no. Three. No, hang on. Let me say again. Go for it. Casemiro became the third Brazilian to reach 200 La Liga games for Real Madrid. Only two other players who are Brazilian have gotten more appearances for them. So these are Brazilian Real Madrid players. Correct. Ah, let me cross. Who's had more appearances in La Liga? Than Casimiro. Let me cross Danny Alves off my list right now. <laughs> Let's do that. And then um, I've got one name written down then. I'm going to have to give it some thought on the second name. And I will, uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what the answer is at the end of the show for sure. So. Uh, let's jump into opening thoughts, my friend. And obviously the big one this week, uh, well, we've had a couple of big ones this week, but I think, um, one of them we're going to discuss with our guest. So we're going to take the other one and discuss it between you and I, and that is the return of Xavi to Barcelona as head coach. The deal was worked out this week with, uh, Al Hilal to, uh, get him out of his contract and bring him to Barca. He will be introduced Monday as Barca's head coach, uh, he had 767 appearances for his uh, for Barcelona, uh, which is only um, second, really, to Leo Messi from my notes here. Uh, eight La Liga titles, four Champions League, three Copa del Reyes, two Club World Cups, two European Super Cups, six Spanish Super Cups. I mean, the man is a legend. He's at a World Cup. He's got a Euro. He's won everything, and he's highly regarded as to possibly one of the top five midfielders of his generation if not all time i mean the man is an absolute legend coming back to barcelona you, you and even by indications this weekend watching barca this weekend you'd have thought that he was already on the sidelines they ran out to a three nil lead and then of course promptly tied the match three three so uh no no effects by xavi just yet but this is a, a probably one of the worst kept secrets in world football you knew he was coming back uh, it was just a matter of when and I've got to say, I don't know enough about his coaching style because I haven't really watched any of Al Halal's matches uh, in the Qatari League, but um, or the Saudi—I think it's Saudi Arabian League. I'm sorry. And 
Qatar. <clears throat> Qatar. Okay, so I was right. Um, and I don't, so I don't know what his coaching style will bring, but if it's anything like Xavi the player, um, you can expect some type of return to Tiki Taka. You can expect some type of turn to quick return to quick play to passing. He's I personally, I think he's got the right young players to do a lot of it between Pedri, between Ansu Fati, uh, Frankie de Jong. I think he's got a lot of nice pieces there and this might be the kick in the pants they need. Now, will it be soon enough to get them to fight for that La Liga title? Will it be soon enough for them to get back into the Champions League race and possibly qualify to the knockout stages? It remains to be seen, but I think this is a step in the right direction. I think this is something that, uh, you know, Barca, maybe um, you, maybe you're starting to see them come out of the ashes um, that, that basically they saw them burnt to the ground. Uh, and, and I think this is the right move forward. So I'd like Roberto, I'd like your thoughts on Javi. I mean, we know that he's a legend. We know that he's coming into a familiar place in, in uh, the camp. No, what is your impression of Javi, the coach coming into this? Well, looking at his CV real quick and looking at what he did at Al Saad, um, he did win a couple trophies, actually, seven to be exact. So, sorry. Um, yeah, no, seven. So he obviously knows what it takes to win titles. Okay, we're not going to compare the Qatari League to La Liga in any case, but I think we we are seeing someone that was very intelligent as a player and, and seems to have the understanding of what it means to be a Barca player. You know, this is someone that has been through Barcelona since the age of 11 and left it at the age of 35. So that's quarter of a century, literally, at one club. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, this is someone that's done everything that you can imagine, not just as a, as a Barcelona player, but also playing for Spain. So, yeah, you, know, you got someone here that is clearly very intelligent, he was like that as a midfielder. Let's see how he is as a manager, though. Okay. Mm. I think we have to lay off a bit of the expectations towards Barcelona. You said that, you know, do we see this Barcelona side contending for the La Liga title? 12 games in, and I think they're, what, 11 points behind Sociedad, who are top of the league, and looking at all the other teams that they're ahead of them. I don't know if that's going to be the case. I think, similar to... Um, I think we spoke about this last week. Like this is year zero for Barcelona. This is year zero for them in case in terms of wanting to essentially restart. You know the fact that your best player of all time just left. You're undergoing a huge financial crisis that will take a long time to recover. I think the most you could really expect from this Barcelona side. And yes, people can say no, but it's Barcelona. It's one of the best teams in the world. Well. Cycles change, and they all end at one point. And I think for this Barcelona side, their golden cycle that had been so successful over the last 15 years is over. And so now they got to start anew, similar to what many teams around the world have done. Look at Milan, you know, look at Liverpool, look at those teams that had to restart. We're going to see what kind of, I would say, transformation Xavi makes with the side. It's not going to happen overnight, as we know, Joe, but... You would think that as long as Xavi is able to, you know, get them respectively into a European competition, I think they're still in contention for that. The question is which one. Let's see how they do in the Champions League. They're not out of it just yet. I think they can secure qualification with one more win. But um, yeah, I, I think I think it's a good sign because you have someone that is obviously very much understanding of the Barcelona DNA, DNA more so than Coleman. He's played under 
one of the best managers of all time in Pep Guardiola. He's played under Luis Enrique as well, won titles there. So he clearly has this understanding of, of you know, Barcelona DNA. Like, you know, few players only have. But um, we, we got to see how it goes. And, you know, you can't really say much until he really gets onto the, onto the touchline. But I am more confident that this will pan out in a good way. But... I think we have to understand that it's going to have to take time. You know, this is not up to you're going to flick a switch and it's, everything's all solved. I think it's going to take a while. And if they're able to get the reinforcements and, you know, try to balance the books as much as they can for next season, then I think we start to see what Xavi's idea is uh, for this side. I'd like to correct myself. Um, I said he was coach at Al-Halal. He's at coach at Al-Sad, like you'd said. Um, Champions League, you're correct. Uh, Barca are currently in second place. Uh, Bayern Munich have already qualified in Group E. And Barca, like you said, they're one win away. They're truly one win away because they are uh, facing Benfica at home in their next match at the Camp Nou. That match is coming up on the 22nd of November, so Thanksgiving week for the, those in the United States here. And if they can uh, if they can pull off the win against Benfica, they would automatically qualify as a second-place spot with one match to play. So that's a big thing. Uh, also, coming back to the league, um, their first match is going to be uh, it looks to me at uh, at home as well in the Catalan Derby. They're going to have Espanyol coming in on the 19th. So Xavi comes back into the fold here in in matches that are going to be quite critical for Barcelona. You know, part of their DNA, part of their Champions League run. These are going to be pretty critical uh, matches for them, uh, you know, because obviously with Barca and Espanyol, they're currently tied on points. Uh, they're currently sitting mid-table. You know, three points will go very, very far. They could put them as far as uh, sixth place with Rayo Vallecano, depending on what happens with uh, Athletic Club and Osasuna. They could actually start to sneak into those uh, those European spots like you had just mentioned. Um, and it's a big it's a big rivalry that they're going to be able to do that in and Exactly, uh, you know, and being able to qualify for Champions League, given the fact that they've only scored two goals so far in Champions League, both of them are one nil victories against Dinamo Kiev. Um, I think that would go a long way for their uh, their confidence, right? And and if you've got Xavi starting to build on a system coming in now early, where he'll get not the full complement of the team, but he will get many of the players uh, as most of their players are going to go on the international break and play for their national teams. Um, but he'll be able to start to move those pieces in and do the things that he wants to do. You know, it's a critical time, but I think that there is a big win for Barcelona. If they can get wins out of those two matches, uh, kind of start to play in the way Xavi wants to play and then, and then start to move forward. I think, I think it's a critical time, but I think it's the right time for them to do the things they need. So, uh, we'll have to see uh, coming up. So let's table that discussion for now. Uh, and as we'll see, that's going to be a book that is going to be written as the season goes on. And let's get our guest in here. So with uh, we're, we're very lucky to have him. Uh, he's, a, he's a Tottenham Hotspurs fan, but he also covers uh, football for Get French Football News. And he also works for Talk Sport in London as well. So we're fantastic to have him back on the show. The, uh, the great Tom Scholes. So let's go to the Tom Scholes interview. And joining us now on Low Limit Football from TalkSport and Get French Football News, Mr. Tom Scholes. Tom, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, last week, when Roberto and I left it with Nima Tavale, we were in the middle of what we were calling the Antonio Conte sweepstakes, where Tottenham Hotspur and Manchester United were rumored to be going after Antonio Conte. Uh, since that happened, uh, Nuno Spirito Santo was sacked, 
and Tottenham Hotspur jumped in, uh, signed Antonio Conte, uh, basically stealing him out from Manchester United. So, and obviously, you know, playing their first match today, a nil-nil draw against Everton. What are your thoughts on how everything materialized for Spurs to be able to lure Antonio Conte to White Hart Lane and and move forward under uh, Manchester United's nose? I think to to kind of take it back. I've got to take it back to when Nuno was still in charge. I was at Spurs Man United, what was dubbed El Sakico. It took me quite a while to be able to pronounce that properly without it sounding wrong in the weeks leading up to the game. But I think it, what has transpired from that was basically that game was the loser takes Conte, or at least that's what the perception of it was. And what I think happened was and if you if reports are to be believed, is when Nuno took Lucas Moura off and the, the, the chorus of boos just, it came down. It shocked me. It shocked our commentary team to the point where I've worked with our commentators for long enough to understand and know what some of their little, their little things are when they notice something. And we gave each other a look as if to say, oh, we didn't expect that. We didn't expect that kind of reaction. Lucas was, was playing well as any Tottenham player did that day. But the booze, I think, was enough to make Tottenham and the board take notice of the situation and act on it. Fabio Peritici, who is often credited with a lot of good stuff that happened at Juventus and the Conte under Allegri, I think he kind of used his situation to to take the upper hand in this one. Because I think when you look at the two clubs, when you look at Tottenham, when you look at Manchester United, on the face of it, there is really, if you had the choice, you would pick one club. You'd pick Manchester United. But I think what happened with Conte, and I've been mulling this over, basically trying to ask myself the question, how have Spurs managed to get arguably the best manager in the world? This never happens to Tottenham. This never has happened to Tottenham. And for the longest time, I never thought it would happen to Tottenham. But it has happened to Tottenham. So I've got to kind of process it in a in a way where I go, this has happened, isn't it? Right? He is in the dugout. This is here. But I think what Conte looked at was, you look at what's going on at Manchester United, there seems to be like a reluctance in the board to let Ole Gunnar Solskjaer go because they've had multiple times this season alone to sack him and they haven't decided to do that. They had multiple chances last season and they, did, they decided not to do that. So I think the ultimate vibe, I guess, from the club is that he's there to stay for the, for the foreseeable future, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a, in a second. But I think Conte looked at Spurs and he goes... I know the sporting director. I've worked with him before. He, he he might like a challenge, and there is no bigger challenge in the country than making Spurs win a trophy, as I know far too well. But you've also got the facilities that are there. The training ground is exceptional. The stadium, for anybody that's listening that has ever been to the stadium, it is, it is the closest. It is what I would imagine a spaceship to look like. I have never seen the inside of a spaceship, nor have I seen the outside of one. But if I was to see one, I would assume that it is sitting on the Seven Sisters High Road in Tottenham, North London, because that is how impressive it is. He looked at it and he probably thought, I can be Antonio Conte at Tottenham more than I can be at Manchester United because there isn't the baggage of the history of Manchester United. There isn't Sir Alex Ferguson lurking around and there isn't also the added baggage of replacing somebody who despite the fan reaction online, is still generally well-liked and loved by a vast majority of the Manchester United fan base. 
So I think this, when, when you weigh the two situations up from Conte's point of view, he might have looked at Spurs and seen it as a more favourable situation for him personally, seeing as he's lived in London before. He knows the technical director, Paratici, well enough, and he has spoken more than enough times in the past about his admiration for Harry Kane. But then, yeah, I think it goes into a wider issue about the problems that Manchester United have, not only on the pitch, but behind the scenes as well in terms of the running of the club and how they are able to persuade, or in this case, not persuade Antonio Conte to join the club. You know, Tom, I, I think, and, and I was talking to Joe here real quick, I think it's almost the case as if though Conte looked at the less dysfunctional club as, you know, because I think a lot of people are very much fed up with Tottenham for a lot of different reasons. Of course, like you said, the lack of trophies, but also uh, towards their owner and obviously Daniel Chairman. Um, Chairman Daniel Levy. So, you know, and, and that's another conversation to go with. But now looking ahead, looking ahead to this challenge that Conte is here, and I have no doubt in my mind that I think because of his, his resume, because of the fact that he's won trophies mainly, you know, at Juventus, he's won it at Chelsea and obviously won it at Inter, I think he has what it takes to look at a challenge and say, you know, this is something that I could do. I could be very much Antonio Conte. Having said that, we have to see what kind of Antonio Conte we get because, as you know, this is a manager that gets a lot of absolute control and will not accept anything unless he gets that. And I think that was probably another reason as to why he got this decision over Manchester United, not just because of, you know, I think the less, dis the more dysfunctionality that's happening over there, but also because, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge pressure. It's huge pressure for him. Now, looking forward. And looking at, you know, obviously we can't really judge Antonio Conte after two games, one of them being in the UEFA Conference League against Matisse and, and then obviously this no-no draw against Everton. I just want your thoughts on what you've seen so far, you know, your early impressions and, you know, who do you feel as if they will benefit the most from uh, having Antonio Conte as their, as their manager? I think what I've noticed so far, particularly in the Vitesse game, I know obviously it's very difficult to judge in, in the third UEFA competition, but it's more or less the best sample size we have so far. It's a lot quicker. It's a lot sharper. Uh, the passing is a little bit more uh, zippier, I guess would be the phrase to go with. Um, the players are encouraged by the looks of it to take the ball on, to attack, to not find an easy pass, to maybe take a risk, but not too much of a risk. You look at how certain players played in the Nuno system with Emerson Royale and Sergio Reguilon, who are the two that I kind of look at and think could benefit a lot from this system and formation with Conte. They didn't look like flowing fullbacks. They didn't look like the kind of... A couple of years ago at Spurs, they got used to Walker on one side, Rose on the other. And I think ever since then, ever since they left, or at least Walker left, there's been this like pining for fullbacks or wingbacks essentially that just go forward at will these two kind of look like they have this Reginald and Royale do look like they have that in them it just wasn't coming out in when Nuno was in charge I think another player that will probably benefit from this is Lucas Moura who some would say has been the catalyst for two of the biggest moments in Tottenham's recent history his hat-trick against Amsterdam and being subbed off which meant Nuno got sacked which meant Conte came in so I think a lot of people, in hindsight, are quite happy he was subbed off. But he looks bright. He's a ball of energy. He keeps going. He, 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 I think he needs to improve his 
his decision making, his final ball sometimes. But I think if anybody's going to do that with a player, it's going to be Conte. And to be honest, I think he's that good of a manager. And you see it in the evidence of at Juve, at Chelsea, at Inter, that he improves more or less anybody. And if you can't be improved by Antonio Conte, then you will be out of the club. So I think it's the contrast from Nuno and Conte is like day and night. It's completely different. But I think whatever the, there is this like myth, mythical and, and fabled Tottenham way, every club has their own way, which is probably all the same way, but it's more Tottenham. It's more attacking football, it's faster football, it's risk-taking football. And I think that's what you're going to get under Antonio Conte. And they, in you know, the squad itself perhaps is weaker than a lot of others. And I think most people will admit that from Tottenham side. But they're starting eleven. If all the players are played in the right way and in the right system, could give anybody a threat. Lucas Morris, Son and Harry Kane as a front three has the potential to be quite interesting. Tanky and Dumbelli under under. Uh, and uh, Antonio Conte, I'm quite excited for that. I think he's a wonderful player. He looked very good under Mourinho at times, and he could certainly do well under Conte. So there's a, I think there's a whole host of players in this team that could benefit from it, I think. Definitely. And now looking uh, and switching gears to a side that I think many people had expected a lot from them. And even though they are doing so well in league action, I think you're not seeing that kind of wow that we were all headed up into the summer, and that's PSG. Obviously, we looked at PSG, who had a huge summer, bringing in the likes of Georgina Wijnaldum, Akraf Hakimi, Sergio Ramos, Gianluigi Donnarumma, and of course, Lionel Messi. Um, you know, looking at it real quick, we do see, we didn't see even Sergio Ramos make a, his debut yet. He's still injured and, and sidelined because of it. We're seeing the rotation of Kaylor Navas and Donnarumma, um, but Navas has been getting more appearances. And still, despite goals from Kylian Mbappe and, and Neymar as well, we haven't also seen the best of Lionel Messi um, as we had always been expected of what we've seen at Barcelona. And you look at some of the results as well. You know, obviously they did lose to Rennes, I think, well, last month. They did get a draw in Le Classique. They did have to come back in wins against Lille and I think also against Angers and, you know, also barely escaped the win against Bordeaux. So it almost as if though we're are we not seeing a PSG side that I think was going to wow everyone. And I think it was going to be difficult because of having to get all these players in the right system under Pochettino. Do you see this being fixed uh, as the season progresses? Or do you feel that there's still an issue that is going on at PSG that I think not even the players that had come in um, would be able to fix? I think it could be fixed if you change the manager, maybe. I don't know. That sounds quite harsh. <laughs> I think I think that club is is in a world of its own because it hasn't really recovered. And this might sound strange given the amount of players that they've had in and the, the star names out there. They haven't really recovered from like the Laurent Blanc era of like Diogo Mota in the middle, Betweedy, Ibrahimovic, Pastore, Lovetsi, that era of player. Because that team had cojones. I was going to say someone else then, but I stopped myself. You should, I'm very good at centering myself, as you, as you can tell. But ever since then, there's kind of been like a weakness in the team that was brought to a more mainstream audience, I guess we would say, with the remontada against Barcelona. And yes, they got to the and 
and, and the lesser spoken about, perhaps worse, comeback and collapse against Manchester United. Because at least with Barcelona, you can say they've got Suarez, they've got Messi, they've got Neymar. These things can happen. Manchester United were bang average when they happened. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Man United were bang average when they happened. But I, I think for, for, for the longest time, there's been a lack of identity at that club. Other than they are like the coolest club on the planet. No other club could pull off Jordan kits. No other club could sign all of these players and you know basically have a Galacticos all-star team. But it's been a, it's a team that's been put together over the course, not just this summer, but over the course of the years by Antero Henrique and Leonardo and even Patrick Cliver to some extent as technical directors, sporting directors, with next to no thought of who the manager is or how they want to play. It's been it's been terrible. It's been a really badly assembled squad. And I think yesterday against Bordeaux, um, or this past this past weekend against Bordeaux, you saw it come to the fore because you bring on like your midfield options when Verratti isn't there is Danilo Pereira and Herrera, Leandro Paredes, who wasn't playing, but he's still there. And that's about it. Like, it's not a good... In terms of, in terms of the other elite clubs in, in Europe, you look at like Liverpool, Man City, Bayern Munich, that's probably... The PSG midfield is probably the worst of the lot. They haven't found a system that suits all three players up front. There is actually slightly becoming a bit of an argument that Neymar is playing better without Messi because he's getting more of the ball. And this is the problem that you will have with these players up front. Messi wants the ball. Mbappe wants the ball. Neymar wants the ball. Shock. There's only one ball and there's three of them. How are they going to figure it out? You look at the stats. I think Lakeep posted a graphic a couple of weeks ago of, of the percentages of, of the parts of the pitch where uh, Lionel Messi performed from Paris Saint-Germain under Pochettino compared to where he was uh, for the majority of last season at Barcelona. And he's deeper for Paris Saint-Germain. He's more out to the on, on the flanks, whether it be the left flank or the right flank. He's further away from the action than he was last year. There is an element of he's out to the side. He had his moment against Manchester City, which was a lovely goal, which was a brilliant moment. But that was him coming off from the flank and having runners be, runners around him. But I also think that, and this might sound stupid to a lot of people who aren't fond of the league, the French league, or the Uber Eats league. It's a more physical league than I think he and a lot of other people expected. You see Neymar, he gets battered from pillar to post in that league. I think Messi is taking a bit of time to kind of go, oh, OK, this is a bit of an adjustment. It's a lot quicker than I think he expected. It's a lot tougher than it is in Spain. It's a lot. Um, the referees are a lot more lenient here. They let a lot more, say here, it's a lot more lenient in France because they just let a lot more go. Neymar has spoken time and time again, as I think Thomas Tuchel, when he was in charge of Paris Saint-Germain, about how the referees need to kind of get their act together because one day there's going to be a bad injury. And I think Messi has been caught off guard a little bit by how intense the league is, how physical the league is. He does get kicked because... Yes, you might be playing Twine and Strasbourg, who are okay. They're never going to play against anybody like Lionel Messi. But they don't care. They're going to kick him. They're going to take him out because they want to win. They want to, get, they want to have a good performance. I think the problem that they have is that they have all of these players, and as demonstrated with the, you know, the where they put the front three and the lack of midfielders, 
There's no plan. There's no identity. When he joined the club, Richard Pochettino said he wanted to win with Paris Saint-Germain, but he wants to win with style. Last night, he said the most important thing is just to win. Which one is it? Has he gone into the club with an ideal of, I can get this club playing beautiful football? And then over the course of time, he's had it. He's had any kind of hope whittled down to him where he literally just gets results and that's it. Because as the performances go, that's what it suggests. Performances are irrelevant as long as you get the three points. And as everybody in football knows, that is an unsustainable way of playing. Because ultimately, as they showed against Leipzig, as they showed against Rand, any decent team that figures out how to play against you gets a result. That is plain and simple. They come up against a good team, they're going to get battered. Liverpool are taking that team to pieces. Star or no star, Wijnaldum, Messi, Donnarumma, Hakimi, Ramos, all of these players. You could have them in the team, you could have them out of the team. Paris Saint-Germain aren't beating them. I think I think also you make a great point about their midfield going back on your comments. Um, that the midfield, and we've seen a, a few teams like this in, in recent memory, you know, even this season, where if you don't have good control of that midfield, you know, it all goes to hell for you because it, it you can't control the ball, you can't control the play, and you can't link up from the back to the front. And and I think that's one of the one of the things that PSG is suffering right now is their ability to be able to link that play. Marco Verratti is just not enough when he is healthy uh, to be able to do that for them. So, uh, Tom, I want to I wanna ask another question about PSG. This is more of a late-breaking uh, situation going on, and that is the, the result or the, the news on Kaylor Navas, who uh, has been withdrawn from the Costa Rican national team for qualifiers coming up in this international break. Uh, reports of possibly a shoulder injury, what's going on with him. And this is a, this is a player, um, and Roberto and I have talked about this quite a bit. You know, it's hard not to talk about, uh, Kaylor Navas as a top five goalkeeper in the world. He's he, another guy that's that's won pretty much all of it, and you know now he's battling with with certainly one, arguably one of the best keepers, if not the best keeper in the world, in Gigio Donnarumma, coming off of Donnarumma's win at the Euros and and the most valuable player and all that good stuff that went with that. Um, this is not really a great timing for a Kaylor Navas two or B for the uh, Costa Rican national team because of their inability to possibly qualify for the 2022 world cup. What do you know? What's the latest on Kaylor Navas and his situation? It was, it, I saw the news earlier on and it caught me a little bit off guard because he played last night, playing at the weekend against Bordeaux and he looked fine. He didn't look like a person that was about to pull out from international duty because of an injury. He looked, he looked like Kaylor Navas. Yes, he conceded two late goals, but I think that was more down to the players in front of him. Uh, the, 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 as, as, as before mentioned, midfield letting them down a little bit. But he looked fine. He looked as healthy as a goalkeeper could. I didn't notice any kind of... Normally, when a, when a goalkeeper has an injury, certainly a, an injury like he has, you notice it. They bring attention to it because they it's a key part of their key part of their game. I don't know. It must. It, uh, the feeling I get from Kaylon Neves is he never, ever will turn down the opportunity to play. And I always find, and this might be a rather poor generalisation from my part, but I always find that for star names or big-name players who play for um, international nations who aren't a superpower, let's say, you, I'll use an example, Alfonso Davis of Canada, Kaylon Neves of Costa Rica, then they never really turned the, the opportunity to down, 
turn the opportunity down to play for them. They are always there. They always travel with them. They always give as much as they can. So it must be serious for him to pull out of this, especially considering the situation they find themselves in in their qualifying. But again, I think it's a bad timing for him because one, it's vital for him to play for Costa Rica in vital matches, but also his position in the team. He's playing a lot of games in Liga. He's playing a lot more than Gianluigi Donnarumma has been, even though Donnarumma has been arguably the best player in the Champions League for Paris Saint-Germain this season. He saved a penalty uh, in the most recent fixture against uh, Leipzig. He was pulling off save after save against Manchester City in a game that they probably should have lost. So I think for him, on a club level, it's bad timing because it was hard enough to keep your place anyway. Now, whether Pochettino or whoever takes charge in the future, let's say, hypothetically, if Pochettino isn't there, whoever takes charge in the future, let's see how they manage the rotation system. My guess would be that when Navas comes back, he'll probably play more Liga games because he's more experienced in that way. And you need to, I guess, save Donnarumma for the, for the bigger games and the Champions League knockout games, provided they get there, of course. But I think it's bad time for him. It's unfortunate for him. He's one of my favourite goalkeepers, like you said. You could definitely make the argument for him being one of the one of the top five. And I think there was an argument to be made at the, towards the business end and the back end of last season. He was probably the best goalkeeper on the planet. He was making incredible saves. He was keeping Paris Saint-Germain. Paris Saint-Germain in uh, the, the Champions League against Bayern Munich, he was exceptional. So I think you know it's unfortunate for him. I hope it's nothing serious for his sake because he's a top, top goalkeeper. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. I want to bring you back through the channel and back to the to England um, and, and discuss what basically come full circle in our conversation. Um, again, with all these managers being sacked, we saw Daniel Farka be uh, sacked at Norwich after winning his first match of the season, of course. Earlier today, we saw Dean Smith sacked at Aston Villa, but all eyes really are at Manchester and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. He was given three matches to turn this thing around. The first match he won, which was the match against Tottenham Hotspur. The second match he drew, which was against uh, Atalanta in the Champions League. And the third match uh, painted Manchester blue instead of red with a 2-0 victory for Manchester City. Really, a, a match that, you know, here in the United States, I get to listen to Brian Dunseth on SiriusXM. We've had him on the show many times. And... One of the things that Brian, he's also a, a, a Manchester United fan, and he always gripes about the fact that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer gets the tactics so wrong at the beginning that he has to make changes to ultimately get the tactics right. And, and Ole never gets the tactics right right up front. And this this week against Manchester United was, was kind of a, a similar situation because I, I texted Roberto about 20 minutes into the match that City was going to win this match 3-0. Uh, there, there was no hope for United in this one. And, and granted, he did make some good chance, uh, good changes that kind of got them back into the match a little bit. Ultimately, never got them a goal. But with, with Ole winning, drawing, losing, um, what's his situation now? Is he sacked? And is he sacked early enough that United can go out and find a, a, a suitable solution for the head coaching position where they can bring him in uh, during the international break? I think if you were to make a change, now would be the perfect time, as we've seen Villa and Norwich have done that. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they've kind of gone, we can improve on what we have, and they've made the decision now, because if you bring a, if you bring a new manager in now, or in the next couple of days, you have two weeks to work with the players that aren't on international duty. You get accustomed to the club. That being said, 
I have no reason to believe that Manchester United are going to sack Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Because look at their past history. Look at the managers they've sacked when they've sacked them. They've only ever really sacked managers when the top four is mathematically impossible. David Moyes was sacked a couple of months into his first season when top four was completely out of the question, when it was mathematically impossible to do it. Louis van Gaal won the FA Cup, didn't get top four, still got the sack. Jose Mourinho, perhaps a slightly different situation because he was going for Mourinho, but he won two trophies. He won the Europa League and he won the League Cup in the same year. Still got sacked. Still got sacked because that's what that club does. But with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, there's something different about it. And I can't quite put my finger on it. Firstly, as long as they are in the running of the Champions League and are in the Champions League, he's going nowhere. That's just how the club has done it in the past. And I think it's indicative of a club that doesn't know what it's doing from top to bottom. The guy, the one thing that you could always go back to with Solskjaer in the past was he gets games against big teams spot on. He had a habit of doing quite well against Manchester City and Pep Guardiola, and that would be the defence that a lot of people would have. As you said, he got he 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 ends up getting good results because he gets it so wrong initially. But with all due respect to Atalanta, and like they are a good team, and this is going to sound like a very backhanded thing to say because it is, you can go two 0 down to Atalanta because you can punish them defensively. Their defence is not strong enough to withhold the players they have. Can't do that against Liverpool. Can't do that against Manchester City. Won't be able to do it against Chelsea. Won't be able to do it against anybody of worth any salt in Europe. Yes, they beat Tottenham 3-0. I think if us three and a couple of other of our friends got together, we could have beaten Tottenham 3-0 that day. So that's nothing, that's nothing special. It's like that Chris Rock thing. You're supposed to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. The, all, the problem I also have with it, and I think the problem that Manchester United are finding is, who's the, who's the next who's the next guy? Who fits in? They had the, one of the people that you'd probably say fit in, and they lost him to Spurs. Who loses a manager to Spurs? Man United do, and they did. Is Zidane going to be there? He's never, ever spoken about coming to England as a player or as a manager in his career. If anything, he's gone out of his way to say he's never really cared much for it. Brendan Rodgers? bit uninspiring considering his track record of getting Leicester into a good position halfway through the season and then ultimately finishing fifth again. And then he didn't do very well at Liverpool, which won't help him. Eric Ten Hag won't leave Ajax in the middle of the season. Graham Potter probably isn't ready for it just yet. And why would he leave a good situation at Brighton? I've seen Ralph Rangnick has been linked to it today, which and he, that's that's when you know you're at the bare bones. He gets linked to every top job. He's never going to get it. Never has done. Never will do. But he's a cool name to throw out there. He's not going to get it. He's Solskjaer's going nowhere, and they have no reason to get rid of him from their point of view. Us three can look at it and just go, "They're a mess. Someone needs to come and sort this out." They'll turn around and say, "Still in the hunt for the top four." Still in the Champions League, probably going to go through. And why do, we, why do we need to worry? We've got Ronaldo. Well, I think what Manchester United are going through is what Juventus went through. Juventus burned through Sarri, Perlo, and eventually ended up getting rid of Ronaldo. 
they go back to what they know. And the same thing is going to happen at Manchester United. They're going to burn through a manager. They're going to burn through another manager as long as Ronaldo's there. And they're going to, they're going to have nothing to show for it at the end of it. They had their chance to make the decision. And it was when you get pumped 5-0 at home to your biggest rivals, Liverpool. They didn't make the decision. They're sticking by him. And my guess is they're going to stick by him until the end of the season. Amazing stuff. History just looking like it will repeat itself. Um, it's an excellent mirror to the Juventus story. I, I agree with you uh, completely. So, Tom, thank you for coming on the show and joining us. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on. And we look forward to having you back again very soon, my friend. My pleasure is always coming on. I enjoy coming on, so I'm happy to do it. And special thanks again to Tom Scholes for joining us on the show. Mr. Rojas, I know we have a trivia answer coming up, but let me give you some matches of the week uh, here as we go into the international break. And we're keeping an eye at the time of this recording on the AC Milan uh, Inter Milan matchup, the Derby della Madonnina, to see if uh, AC Milan can continue as one of the undefeated teams or unbeaten teams left in the uh, top five leagues. Uh, I'd mentioned it in my early monologue. Entering the weekend, we had Liverpool, Freiburg, uh, Napoli, and AC Milan as the four unbeaten sides in European football's top five leagues. Uh, Freiburg losing to uh, to Bayern Munich this weekend. We saw earlier today, really technically second-placed West Ham United beating Liverpool, um, knocking them from the ranks of the unbeaten. Napoli pulling out a 1-1 draw against Hellas Verona. So we're just keeping an eye on AC Milan to see if they can hold on to that title and remain as one of the only unbeatens left in European football. So uh, let's go into the matches of the week. And on Thursday, again, this is international break again. On Thursday, in European qualifying, we have Ireland-Portugal at 2.45 p.m. Then we'll go over to South America to Conmebol, where Paraguay-Chile will play each other at 6 p.m. And Brazil-Colombia at 7.30 p.m. Uh, Brazil, if I remember correctly, Roberto, correct me if I'm wrong, already qualified for the 2022 World Cup. Officially not, no, but I do. they are very close to it. Close enough, right, exactly. On Friday, uh, Italy-Switzerland at 2.45 p.m. That's going to decide the top of their group uh, as things stand right now. Uh, then we'll go back to the uh, Conmebol for Uruguay-Argentina at 6 p.m. And then the big one here in CONCACAF, USA-Mexico, 9 p.m. on Friday. Uh, definitely not for the faint of heart. On Saturday, uh, just one lone match to really talk about that caught our interest is Wales-Belarus at 2.45 p.m. Then on Sunday, we're going to throw uh, an, an African qualifier for you as Ghana faces off against South Africa at 1 p.m., and then we have Spain, Sweden at 2.45 p.m. Um, and then obviously uh, the following week, there'll be more uh, World Cup qualifying. Check your lo- local listings for some of those matches. So, my friend, you gave us a great trivia question at the beginning of this. I think I've got it, um, but if you could give it to us one more time. Absolutely. So, Casemiro uh, over the weekend played in his 200th La Liga game for Real Madrid, becoming the third Brazilian to reach this milestone for them. Who are the other two who have also reached this milestone? So, two Brazilian players that have played for um, Real Madrid, as who we're looking for here. One of them, so Casemiro, I, I, you know, confession, um, I don't care for him. I think he's a little bit of a dirty player. But I think one of the guys on this list is one of my favorite Real Madrid Brazilian players. I'm going to give you two names, and then you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, but my favorite is is Marcelo. Uh, absolutely love him. Love watching him. Love the way he plays. I'm going to give you Marcelo as one name. And the second name I'm going to give you is possibly one of the greatest free kick takers of all time, uh, Mr. Roberto Carlos. Uh, so those are my two names, Marcelo and Roberto Carlos. Do I have it? 
Both of them played in the same position. Both of them played at Real Madrid, and both of them made history as well, becoming part of this milestone. You are correct. Wow. Marcelo Vieira is the Brazilian with the most games for La Liga uh, at Real Madrid with 377 and counting. Roberto Carlos with 370 in last in second place, and who have just reached the top five, the top three, Casemiro with 200. Amazing. He's got a long way to go to catch those two players, that's for sure. Uh, two all-time, <laughs> in my opinion, two all-time greats in, in world football. So, uh, My friend, I don't have anything left on the docket, so let's hit the closing music. Let's do it. All right, here we go. And so for episode 341 of Low Limit Football, special thanks again to Tom Scholes for joining us on the show. Next week, we're off. Uh, we're going to take the week off and uh, and regather our thoughts as we enjoy the international break. And the following week, we'll come back at you with uh, more stuff, more uh, news. We're going to look at MLS as they are currently battling out decision day today. Uh, we'll know the playoff setup as we come back to the show. So for episode 341 of Low Limit Football, I am Joe Ucello. I'm Roberto Rojas. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good night.